Hello, 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 and welcome back. We're really happy to be back again. Um, we went off the air for a couple weeks, not by choice. The crew got sick with the norovirus. There's been like a mini outbreak going on in Southern California, apparently coming from a Chipotle in Simi Valley, but we're all recovered. We're all good. Actually, today's podcast almost didn't happen um, for a myriad of reasons, but basically I left the power cord for the computer at work and I'm not at work, right? So what ended up happening was I tried using um, my backup computer that I have. I have an old desktop, um, a Dell like E550 like or something like from, they came out originally in 2007 and it's, it's like dual booted running like Windows 7, which is pushing it for that desktop to be honest and um a kde4 like either gen 2 or um yeah like a gen 2 kde4 hybrid or something like that i i I can't remember i installed that a really long time ago uh so naturally i went with my instincts and i was like well let's uh let's boot up the linux instance and see what we got going here and um i was i had to build audacity which is what i'm using to record um from source and you know that was uh, not a hassle but you know whatever um and it was like audacity like one three or something i was like something old that i had on that on that machine and uh then i realized that i wasn't gonna have the drivers for the mics uh, when I plugged it in and I wasn't about to uh, like roll out my own driver or like go on a hunt for like the missing drivers that don't exist for the Linux system. So uh, I switched over to a Windows machine, um, the the Windows 7 instance. And of course, there was like a million updates that I needed to do. And at the end of the day, I couldn't find the proper drivers anyway. So that was a bust. And then I'm actually recording this from a Surface Pro 3. My girlfriend was nice enough to lend it to me um, to set up a to set up a mini recording session and uh it too had some driver issues but at the end of the day it seems to be getting the job done so that's um that's good so while we're off the air a couple things happened apple had their keynotes they released the apple tv sdk that is really interesting because i saw it and i looked into it and the first thing i noticed was that it's a like template based uh system or at least that's what i saw i saw a bunch of tags there and man do i long for the day that we no longer have to do superfluous markup and i think the end is coming um probably with web components because i've been thinking about it so referencing that the the ted talk or it wasn't a ted talk the the talk that we've um that we mentioned before in the podcast i'll put the link on it where they're talking about what programming could be um I think that I really, really like the way that iOS development works in general, like um, stepping aside from the Apple TV. Uh, what I mean by this is the interface builder or like the storyboard builder does a lot of the legwork when it comes to like the visual like location, how things are going to show up on the screen, where they're going to be when stuff is rotated. All that is done for you and all of it is automatic. And I mean, if you look at the the stuff being generated, it's like some sort of like XML or something. So it is a markup, but you don't have to write it yourself, which um, ends up happening a lot in a lot of development is what I've noticed. And I really think that that is the way of the future when we can do proper web development without having to write up the actual markup and build your own divs and stuff the world's going to change it's going to be really really nice to do um to basically be a web developer instead of having to deal with like all these stupid divs and all this shit right so web components um we've also talked about that before are going to be 
sort of a, could be a solution to this because if you define some very very basic web components then that would be the same way as if you uh, the defi the defined components that come when you're doing iOS development like the button the slider the you know so on and so forth and you could probably in so you could have an interface where you just again have a storyboard exactly the way that you would um with iOS where you define the parameters of where you want things to be, how you want things to act when they rotate, like how do you want the behavior of the object to behave, uh, behave basically um, on screen when things are like moved about up around and about. Right. And then you can just sort of have that um, on screen and be like, okay, I want to center this like here and here. So like if this gets resized, it'll, you know, like it'll squish in here and you might be able to even roll out your own, like pick a grid and then stop dro dro dropping items into your grid and have it behave the way that you would expect. Right. Uh, prior to the release of web components and like Polymer and all that stuff, um, Polymer's the library, but prior to the release of web components, that would have been a really far-fetched idea because you would basically have had to generate the HTML and basically all the divs associated with that kind of behavior that you would want, right? And the reason that wouldn't work is because uh, you'd basically get a lot of the weirdness that you get when you use like um photoshop's export to like html or export you know basically export to web feature it doesn't really work and it like sort of generates all these divs and it's just like very clunky in it and you it, it's not smart about the optics basically but if you had this tool that was really smart about it had some basic web components and then you can define uh after adding definitions to code and like maybe like defining how the the components behaves a more of um more of a unity 3d approach so what unity 3d is if you guys have used it before is a i guess platform or a software for developing games in which you have a an object model that you basically drop code into and it's very, very different than just like sitting down and doing like shader programming. I mean, I haven't done a lot of game development, but when I did, it was, we did a lot of it manually, but the, the, the schema was a little different on this. You just have like your own objects that you would import from whatever your favorite editing thing is. And then you would start adding behaviors associated to it, to, to it, that it, it would interact with this environment. The same way that you can do that in Unity 3D has been very useful in making it easier to do um game development by taking out the drudgery of like having to actually deal with like a massive code base uh there needs to be a software that does that and leverages web components in order to take the drudgery out of building websites now i know what you're what y'all are going to say it's like well if that's the logical conclusion you've reached then you know what happened to dreamweaver what happened to that kind of stuff dreamweaver sucked a giant dick it sucked a fat one it really sucked um, for a bunch of reasons, but mostly because of the obvious drawbacks. Like no one uses it because it doesn't really work anymore. Now, if you could define components that you have on screen the way that you do with iOS, define some of the behavioral for the pos positioning stuff, and then have a code behind for all the like extra visual stuff, extra behavioral stuff, and encapsulated code, then you basically have a working system that makes it really easy to do development. That's the whole reason that native applications are really easy, really nice, and really fun to develop is because you don't have to deal with a lot of the bullshit that you run into across um, cross-browser cross platform stuff. So if you 
take that model that you know works, right? That model clearly works. A lot of people love it, and it's um, very, very useful and very, very helpful to developers. And you apply it to web development, which we now can do because we have web components. Then the resulting IDE or whatever you want to call it, like way of developing, is going to be so much easier and so much better. And you're going to have more dynamic and <clears throat> interactive um, websites, basically, because you all you have to do you your JavaScript would be uh, limited to the object that you apply it to and then you can define some basic interactions you'd basically be building like i mean there's no other way for it, no other word for it you'd be building components that interact with each other on screen and interact with the user and that would be monumental it'd be amazing and i've talked about it before with microsoft's xaml where they do something similar to that and so you may be wondering well why didn't that take off if if it is the case that that is where people want it or where you would like the web to be. The problem with Microsoft XAML was that, A, you were bound by the Microsoft stack. So you were building it in C Sharp and .NET and you had to use their tools. And of course, it's going to work on IE, but it might not work on any of the other browsers. So that wasn't very, very useful. So let's change gears really quick. I've been doing a lot of math recently and like that's not a, a bragging thing. I just happen to be doing it a lot more than I've been doing it before because I'm doing more of a research kind of thing where I'm trying to generate content based on key users for social media to in order to create a basically a recommendation engine that sort of recommends topics and content that you should be publishing on those platforms. So the problem itself is kind of complex and I ended up doing a lot of, a lot of math um, involving, uh, well, obviously recommendation engines, but it's also like a lot of linear algebra clusters and ring theory uh, in order to base, and I know that sounds complicated, but the idea is to basically define the problem in order to, and use mathematical structures to basically whittle down and decrease the complexity of the overall project into something that's very rigid and something that could basically plug one thing into it and have it spit out something relevant, right? Which is what you want to do when you're doing computer science. But it was funny because in that mindset, I realized, man, like we should be doing that all the time because what what ha ends up happening is that you end up start you start seeing places where linear algebra can help you basically basically collapse uh, the problem that you're solving into something that's really simple and really short and really easy to solve. So I think the first time I saw something like that was when I was um, playing around with a sort of like GPS tracking system but where you have a direction and then you define like turns and then you're supposed to figure out like which direction you you ended up turning. So like if you're going south and then you turn right and left and blah, blah, blah. And there's a really easy way to do that. Um, logically, like it's not actually hard to like program out the, like if you do it OOP kind of way or if you do it just, a, you know, imperative and you're just going ahead and straightforward and be like, okay, when I'm going south and I turn this way, then I'm pointing this way. There's another way to do that using, I think, vectors and somebody's like conjecture or somebody's like uh, I think it's called Graham's scanning algorithm so if you do it with Graham's scanning algorithm the whole thing collapses to four lines of code because of how you represented the data and the directions and so that was really really cool and it's funny because that problem is probably not difficult to solve, right? And you can solve it fairly easily using like objects, using again, just a straight um, logic. 
or programming business logic or or just intelligence into it. But there are other problems that are misleadingly simple that will trip you up um, and I'm sure has tripped up a couple of people that are, again, disappear when you when you basically apply math to it. So one of the things that was really exciting was I was doing, I have the displeasure of having to develop on a Magento system, on a Magento system for a client. Um, it's a boring, it's a terrible system and a boring project. But one of the features that they did want was, hey, we want to be able to take a product that's in multiple categories and filter on it. So basically they want to do like multiple filtering. That's fine. Um, that's easy. I'm sure a lot of you have done it with like JavaScript where you just say um, dot uh, or jQuery and maybe like underscore JS where you just like dot filter this set, right? Maybe you're using Backbone and you have like some, you, actually this is, this is a great example. Maybe that problem is really easy to solve if you have like a Backbone collection and then you apply a filter to it, right? And then you can filter stuff out, right? But because of how and let's say that you wanted to do two two filters, right? Like one filter on the main category and then a filter based on other categories. That's cool. You just say dot uh, filter my collection once and then filter it again, right? And then Backbone sort of takes care of the rest. That's great. But the problem with Magento is that it stores things on the table and it does it like it retrieves it by joining stuff. So let's say that you do filter on a category. The products that you're going to get if you try filtering it again because of how the result set returns, it's basically does a, a, a left join on a table, you're going to be missing data and you end up with a, a lot more restrictive. You actually might even get nothing uh, or you might get something very little depending on how the data joined. And uh, it, I ended up Googling this, um, trying to find like what solutions other people had come by and they basically just they hit a wall. They couldn't really do it. They just had to do like, Oh yeah, this category and that category and that category or really restrictive and searches, right? So it was either very loose, like you were getting the category that you wanted in another category, but not a subfilter on a category. So you were saying, hey, I want something from like uh, category A and category B, right? Um, and, and category C, right? And so you get a bunch of like stuff back, right? But really what they wanted was, I want all the stuff in category A and then from category A, give me anything that is also in category B. They wanted a intersection. So once it dawned on me that it was just a set intersection, uh, then the easiest way to do this was to basically generate two sets, the sets of stuff in category A, the set of stuff in category B, and then do an intersection to get the data. And once I did, the implementation only took like 30 minutes, if that. And it was, it was, it was easy, it was easy, right? But nobody online thought of doing that or even came close to doing that. Everybody sort of resigned or did something else or did a loose version of that. And no one did what they really wanted, which was they wanted to filter on one and then apply a second filter on another. And that seems like that seems just sad or a lack of proper training um, to the developers that are developing on this. Or maybe just Magento's not meant for developers and actually i wouldn't be surprised it's like a php system their templating engine is like mediocre at best it like sort of works sometimes the way that it infers stuff is kind of shitty the way that uh, some of the pathing happens where like it turns underscores into like actual it maps out like underscores in your classes to paths on the server 
to load your data from. It's it's really nasty. It's just an XML-driven piece of shit uh, that shouldn't be around, but has gained enough popularity, and they built the product like based or like um, the the sales side of it. They built it so well for the consumer that they like you'll get requests for it, and you're just sort of entrenched in it. And that's kind of like the sad state of affairs of um, a lot of popular software. Like I, I saw um, an article the other day on how Bloomberg. Uh, the site has is has got like some stupid amount of uh, Fortran code, and a stupid amount of developers um, maintaining that Fortran code. And the business case was basically like, look, we got all this Fortran code, and this is where people come to get up to the minute updates on like the DAO or whatever the fuck they do, like some you know business business money money shit. Um, so it behooves them to maintain obsolete code. That's fucking crazy. That is so fucking crazy, because um. What ends up happening, this is why I'm always a proponent of build it right the first time because you're never going to fucking rebuild it and someone's going to be stuck maintaining that shit. Every time we do Greenfield's development on my company, I'm like, let's just build it right the first time. I know that Agile is like really sexy right now and everybody's like, oh, we just got to build an MVP. We just got to get it out. We got to market test it. We got to see this shit. So we got to cut corners and just get it like from A to B as fast as possible, like using whatever, right? Let's Let's just get it out there. But what ends up happening is, okay, let's say your MVP goes to to market or whatever, and it like does pretty well. At that point, you're not just gonna be like, okay, we tested it, let's like scrap that and build it right. No, you end up building on top of it until you've accumulated enough technical debt that there's a, a at best you get a refactor, right? But even then, if the language you chose to start off with, that's not gonna get abandoned. If the language you chose to start off with is bad, you're not going to drop it. Like if it was originally written PHP, good fucking luck switching to something else, right? Like maybe you'll switch to Perl. Maybe you'll switch to, you know, no, you'll switch from Perl to PHP. Like then be like, oh, now we're using Laravel. At least we're not using Perl. But like, bitch, you're still using PHP. You went from like something that's really outdated to something that's sort of outdated, right? And that's not good. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm a proponent of building it right the first time. But what we seem to ignore when we when we decide to build something, we seem to focus more on the stack rather than the actual problem solving for the problem that you're trying to solve. And this happens a lot because either you don't know what you're trying to solve, you're sort of building a product aimlessly that you're like have somehow gotten invested investing for, um, or you just don't you have a very nebulous idea of what your product looks like, right? And what ends up happening is that people focus more on like, oh, should I write it in Ruby? Should I write it in Java? Should I write it in C? Like what's the best stack? Like what's the hotness right now? Should I use Angular? Or should I like use like Backbone and like some other framework like to make it work nice? Like what about my templating? Do I want to use something like a handlebar, like mustache or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff? And whatever happened to Ember.js, right? So, and that's that's a rhetorical, like, that that would just be like, like, why not this? You know, why A over why B? And they get so trapped in, in the language and what database you're going to use and how everything's going to tie together, whether it's smart to mix things like Ruby on Rails and, like, dump their templating system for, like, Backbone, Backbone.js and uh, Handlebars or something, right? that they totally forget that the problem that they were trying to solve is going to be 
written it a it's going to be written by these people who are like spending all their energy figuring out what stack they want to use and yeah that makes a difference but b did they spend any time thinking about how you solve that problem in the first place like were any is there any sense or of what you're building or is it all going to be business logic and that's really important because it's the difference between good software and great software. Uh, some of the best things and most reliable things that I've written are things that I've written that I've basically taken the problem and transformed it into, I, I usually do linear algebra, so I'll, I'll define things as sets and give them some attributes and then define how the sets are going to interact to solve the problem that I'm solving, like the example with the with the multi-categorical sorting where I want I really wanted the intersection of A and B and not uh, the join of A and B. So that kind of stuff. Um, that's when the results are the best, but there's no emphasis on that because as it is, the way that we do technology development, trying to explain what you're doing to a business person or a marketing person is like already so far gone that if you're trying to explain to them that oh i'm trying to convert the problem that you've given me into a mathematical substructure that i can or a mathematical structure that i can then reliably reliably either prove or get a sense for how these structures are going to interact with each other without actually having to build it and build it wrong and then once i vetted it through mathematical reasoning or proofs or whatever i'm going to do code it and then so that that would be the implementation process that they're not they already don't understand they're going to be like what the fuck are you talking about why are you doing math aren't you getting paid a program and that honestly is a basically an identity crisis of what a lot of people get into because a lot of people that go into computer science become software engineers not a lot of them go into the academia but computer science is and can exist independently of software engineering. You could be a computer science, a scientist and never write a single line of code. It could all be, uh, you'd basically be a theoretical computer science scientist in that you're more focused on the computational theory, like the order of end stuff, the mathematics behind computability. And that's really interesting. So sometimes I look at that and I'm like, man, I should have just been a mathematician because I don't really care about the computation. I mean, I, I care in, about computability theory in so much that when I'm coding, I don't want to do things like order of n squared when there's clearly like an n log n or an n way of doing things, right? Um, but other than that, I like that and compiler, th like compiler theory is also very interesting to me. But other than that is... Um, the only, the only area of interest that I have is really taking problems, turning them into mathematical structures where I can see the solution take place, where I can sort of rein in the crazy and then maybe implement them and see like what the result set looks like. And that probably should be how we do software development anyway, if we're going to be honest. But that's not how we do it right now, which is really unfortunate because I feel like a lot of buggy systems and a lot of the problems that we just run in from one system to another system to another system would be basically solved and solved almost permanently because the solution would be a mathematical construct, right? That you'd post on Stack Overflow and then the implementation piece would be the only piece that you'd have to worry about. It would just be a pure execu execution piece. And if someone got it wrong, where you can be like, okay, well, let's scrap that. Let's go back to the math and build it again and then build it correctly. All right, that's enough of that though. Um, people tend to confuse my love for math with like elitism or something. Oh, but speaking of mathematics, I'm actually reading um, 
uh, Wolfram, Stephen Wolfram's uh, A New Kind of Science, where he in, he actually introduces a really interesting concept early on of um, computer, what was it? Like compu- computational equivalency, where um, seemingly simple programs can produce um, very complex outputs. And he like sort of starts off that train of thought in order to explain why the processes of the universe can be so complex could because he's, he basically makes the argument that we equate the fact that they're com- the the outcome is complex and that therefore the underlying structure must also be complex but he like he basically says no and then begins giving reasons why that is the case and it's actually pretty interesting so if you it's a really thick book so um i don't know that i'd recommend it as like oh yeah go read that but if that's something that interests you like a new kind of science that that sounds super cool actually it reminds me kind of um of dressed in kodak's dark science uh mainly because i'm like secretly want to be an evil scientist but um i mean not evil just a scientist i guess i am a scientist but not a practicing scientist all right who knows anyways i think that'll be that'll be it for now um check us out again we're on twitter at shoot the bit um shootthebit.com has all our latest episodes and we are now on itunes look for us shoot the bit uh till next time ladies and gentlemen 